0: chapter 2, starting in verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are our witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you, And charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Few brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. This is God's word. Thank you. Thanks be to God. That passage ends on a tough note, which we will definitely get to, but, uh, but God's word is given to us that we might rest in Jesus, that we, by resting in him, we would be reoriented to this world and see our lives as we ought and be reinvigorated to be sent out to love him and to love our neighbors. So let's pray that he would speak by his word. Father, we need, thank you that you've given us your word, that you have not left us just with the word of men, with our, to our own wisdom, but that you have spoken. And more than that, that your, that your word is powerful by your spirit. So would you send your spirit to work in our hearts, to receive your word, even this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, my family spent, uh, we spent 13 years in Boston, and uh, one of the effects of that, perhaps unfortunate in some people's eyes, is that I am a Boston sports fan, Um, and I try to uh, not bring up too many illustrations from the Red Sox or the Patriots as we go, but some of you are, are fans of college sports that everybody else hates too, so, you know, you can... Maybe sympathize a little bit. Anyway, uh, and then there's the rest of you that didn't go to Clemson. So, one of my favorite uh, ESPN short documentaries is called "The Two Bills," and it, it, they get together uh, Bill Parcells and Bill Belichick. These are two of the greatest football coaches of all time, and uh, and Bill Parcells is older. Uh, won Super Bowl several times with several different teams over the years. Bill Belichick was on his coaching staff for years, especially towards the end of his time as an active coach. And then, of course, Bill Belichick is now the New England Patriots coach and has won a bunch of uh, Super Bowls and that sort of thing. So these are two of the sort of the greatest coaches of all time. But it's interesting to hear them tell the kind of talk through the story of uh, of Bill Belichick learning under Bill Parcells. And these are two very different people, uh, which is one of the things that's kind of fascinating to watch. Now, I wouldn't say either one is laid back or easy to get along with, <laughs> but they do have very different temperaments. Bill Parcells is very uh, verbose, really out there. You know, he he tells you what he thinks. All these things. Belichick is the opposite. Belichick is a is a kind of black box. He only lets out what he wants. To let out about what he's thinking. Uh, they're very different personalities, but it's interesting to think about how one amazing coach learned from another amazing coach, right, by imitation. But it wasn't mimicking their personality. It wasn't being somebody they weren't, but it was about taking the deeper lessons, right, about what it means to instill a culture of excellence uh, and to embody that yourself as the, the leader of an organization. Um. Imitation is, they say, the sincerest form of flattery. But real imitation, the most important imitation in the most important aspects of life, is not about being the person you are not. Not trying to pretend that you're someone else. But it's about learning the important lessons of character. It's about learning the important lessons of what matters the most. That's the kind of imitation that we actually want to live out, right? That's how... That's how you want as a child to learn from your parents. Or as a parent, you want your child to learn from you. It's, you know, at at work, it's how you want to mentor people or to be mentored. Not simply mimicking the personality, but rather learning the deeper lessons of character and of values. And it's interesting that Paul picks up the idea of imitation throughout his epistles. And we see him picking it up here. He sees it important that the church in Thessalonica learns from the pattern of ministry that he laid out. He, he has already said back in chapter 1 uh, that he's thankful that they have become imitators of us and of the Lord. Let us say of him and Timothy and Silas, but also of the Lord. Paul talks about imitation throughout. In mean, Philippians 3.17, he mentions it. In 2 Thessalonians 3.9, he mentions it maybe one of the most important places where he mentions imitation is in 1 Corinthians 11.1, where he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul brings up this idea of imitation following a pattern that's laid out. And so our points are really pretty simple here. (laughs) There's the pattern and there's the imitation. What is the pattern that Paul lays out for how the church ought to live? This is an important question. He Last week, in the in the first part of chapter two that Tom talked about, uh, he was talking. He was mostly highlighting his connection, but he already did start to draw out some of what that pattern looked like. He talked about his open declaration of the gospel. He talked about uh, how he didn't. He did that without flattery, uh, but with gentleness. Here, as we get into verse nine, you see that he he talks about his focused effort his toil, right, that they labored, they toiled night and day. That's how he describes their work as the church, that it was focused. It was focused on the good news, responding to it and passing it along. That, in one sense, is the heart of the matter, isn't it? Right? If As we talked at the very beginning of this series, if there is a new allegiance that you have, if there is a new life that's on offer, it must mean that your priorities get rearranged. I mean, how many times, though, do we forget that? And we think, well, I can just sort of have the same priorities I had and a little bit of Jesus on top. Rather than understanding what Paul understood, that it means everything gets reoriented Everything gets reevaluated it's pro- it 's within this context that he brings up at the end of verse nine that he was not a burden to anybody there 's a funny fact that Paul kind of goes out of his way to highlight right that he that he worked to sustain his own living. If you look at Acts eighteen, we see that uh, at least at one place he 's working alongside Priscilla and Aquila as, te- as a tent maker which uh, may be a more broad category of somebody who's a leather worker, or it may be strictly just tense. I don't know. It doesn't, it's not really particularly important here. But the point is, Paul works hard not to be a burden. Now he doesn't think it's wrong for the church to support those who minister. In 1 Corinthians 9, he actually brings this up and says, actually, it's the right thing to do. Please give me a paycheck. I I'm, I'm still want a paycheck. But Paul makes the point that he himself refuses to do that. Not because he doesn't have a right to it, but because he, is not, he, he wants to make every effort to show that his intentions are not mercenary. That he's not trying to get something out of others. He wants to bring them the good news. And all of his life is reorganized around understanding, appreciating, loving the good news of Jesus more. That's why holiness is important. You get into verse 10, right? He says, you you are witnesses, right? You saw how we were holy and righteous and blameless toward you. Which is, sounds like a pretty big claim. Because most of us get a little awkward around with holiness language. I'm not sure what to do with it. Some of us get very suspicious of that kind of talk, and the first thing we imagine is hypocrisy and self-righteousness. Somebody who talks about their holiness this way is obviously trying to put on airs. They're trying to prove that they're a good person. Of course, others of us think, well, that's right. We should all get our act together and have very little patience for people that don't seem to get their act together. But in fact, what Paul has in mind here with holiness, and we'll we'll dig a little deeper into this in a minute, but is what it actually means to be a healthy person. It is more profound, it is deeper than many imagine it to be. If we think that we just kind of figured it out, guess again. But it is also a work of gentleness and health, not a matter of hypocrisy. Again, we'll get to that in a minute. But he he teases us out a little bit by pointing out that the way he cared for them was like a father. In verse 11 and 12. You know how like a father with his children... If you, if you were here last week and you heard the sermon on the previous passage, you might remember back in verse 7, he says that we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So he actually uses both, the metaphor of both different parents here, uh, particularly paying attention to the gentleness of a nursing mother, and then here to the encouragement and direction of a father to his children. And he, he, he teases that out, what it means that he was father-like to this church by pointing out three things. He encouraged them, or he exhorted them, he encouraged them, and he charged them. Uh, these three are not necessarily completely distinct. <laughs> I think they overlap in a lot of ways, but they are slightly different angles. This is, this is interesting. So exhorting, I think it's translated appealing in NIV, but the idea being that what he's doing is showing them what's out there, the possibilities, what's there, you know, gi- giving an appeal to them to, to, to see what's ahead. Of course, encouragement, you know, means coming alongside somebody. And you can do it. Press on. I mean, that, in one sense, that's what this whole book is about, It's the kind of work of encouragement to this church. And then charging is is sort of setting out the course. This is where you should go. This is what you should do. It's more directive, right? Of course, if, if you've been a parent, and if you think about it, well, we've all been children, so if you think about it even as you engaged your parents when you were younger, it, the Parenting is always about sort of figuring out those, which one of those you're leaning on at the moment, right? And depending on the situation, depending on the personality of the kid, right? You're sort, they're interrelated, right? Showing them what possibilities are there, encouraging them, coming alongside of them, setting a course for them. I mean, these are all different aspects of what it means to, to help them along as a father. And that's what Paul has done for this church. And so it's worth seeing then that the pattern... Means gospel ministry and holiness. That's how Paul has done this. That's what is meant for him to be a father for them is to, is to encourage them in gospel ministry and holiness. A gospel ministry doesn't mean being professional. It's the basic calling of every Christian to celebrate the good news of Jesus. Celebrate in your own life, to celebrate in our life as the church, and of course also to declare it to those who are outside of the church. So it involves it always involves, and again, this goes back to last week's passage, boldness. But boldness is not brashness, and the two are often confused. Boldness is about speaking up for something because it's so good. It's so true, it's so beautiful. You can't help but talk about it. That's why in the church, even when we're still pretty sure most people here are Christians, we're still talking about it because it's worth talking about. It's worth celebrating. It's about being compelled by something. Brashness, on the other hand, lives off of comparison. Well, it's not that thing. It's so much better than that. And look there is an aspect of the gospel of course in which challenges disproves even demolishes our old way of seeing the world and that's it's important to understand that but brashness delights more in tearing down it delights more in the destruction than in the declaration tearing down rather than building up into what is good and you can you see this sometimes with Christians who love apologetics you, you know what i mean by apologetics the defense of the faith Kind of thing, uh, as a campus minister for, for a decade, I would always get, I mean every year, one or two freshmen who just loved apologetics, right, because they were going to this secular university and they were going to defend the faith, and it seemed to me that nine times out of ten, they were more interested in tearing down than in building up, at least when they first showed up. <laughs> by God's grace, you know, that some of them grew and out of that, but there can be, we can be obsessed with the idea of showing other people how foolish they are, rather than holding out the wisdom of God. And if all we're interested in is tearing down others, that is not boldness in the gospel. That's the kind of brashness that is distinct from the boldness of the gospel, because the boldness of the gospel knows that we're going to be celebrating this even on the other side of eternity, that even when sin and death are done away with, it is the good news of Jesus that will be the song that we sing over and over and over again, even when we're not concerned about ways in which we are wrong. (laughs) ways in which the foolishness of the world pulls on us, even when those things are gone, we will still be singing it because it's so much better. And gospel ministry then involves this boldness, but involves diligence. This is so, this is so important to see. If it is the best, if it is the most significant truth, if it is the most overwhelming beauty, then we press on. We want to engage others well. We want to engage each other As the church, well, we want to continue to press on with one another. We want to follow through. This is what Paul is saying, right? We were diligent. We labored hard because we wanted to see you grow. We wanted to see new people come in. We wanted to see those who were already in the church grow in their depth of knowledge and love. That's why he sends Timothy back. We're going to hear about that next week. (laughs) He sent Timothy back to the church to hear about what was going on. He's concerned, even now, even while he's far away from them, he's still concerned to follow through with them. Diligence is so important. It is a sign that the gospel really has a grip on us, is that we want to endure in it, even when there's challenges. And gospel ministry involves boldness and diligence, it also involves clarity. This is why Paul didn't want to take money. Because he realized there were a lot of people in the ancient Mediterranean world peddling ideas for money, especially orators, who were going around trying to make a living off of this. And Paul, understanding the way in which he would be misunderstood, or could be misunderstood, took the effort to be clear. He wasn't doing this for his own gain. This is another sign that we have really a deep love for the gospel, is that we do want to clarify what it is and what it isn't. This is one of the great challenges of our own day, right? Is that churches have become homes of ideology more than of the good news. And I'm not saying there aren't ways in which what the Bible teaches might not connect with things that your political camp (laughs) is concerned about. I mean, does the Bible care about the unborn? Yes. Does the Bible care about those who have been mistreated and are downtrodden? Yes. Just to use a couple obvious illustrations. But you see, what Paul is so clear about is that he's not backing some other agenda. Some other vision for society among the competing ideas for what it could be. He is holding out a vision of a new king and a new kingdom. The kingdom and the glory into which we are being called. I was trying to think about, you know, boldness and diligence and clarity and, uh, and again, thinking back to my campus minister days, I was reminded of, uh, of the sort of open-air preachers that would show up on campus every once in a while. Now, I was at a private university, so they couldn't be, like, actually on <laughs> campus <laughs> property, but they would be right off of campus property. And uh, it, uh, open-air preaching, in and of itself, uh, I don't necessarily think is a problem. But so many times, right, there was boldness, in, uh, there was brashness instead of boldness, It was about calling people out rather than holding out the goodness of God and Christ. There was no diligence. I think many of them thought that their, that their travels and that sort of thing were them following through. But in fact, but they weren't concerned about being diligent with the people that they were talking to. And there was often very little clarity offered because they were not interested in listening and taking the time to hear what others were thinking that were passing them by. And there were many times I would hear them preach and I'd think, nobody knows what you're talking about. The vocabulary you're using, they do not understand. Now, I'm not saying I've mastered that. I'm not saying we as a church have mastered that. But this is the calling into which we're led, right, is to minister the gospel, to talk to ourselves about it, to talk to one another as his church, and to celebrate it, to declare it in Charleston, the good news of Jesus, boldly, diligently, with clarity. And you see, because we're being called into that new kingdom that has its own priorities, that's why Paul highlights the holiness, even though we have a hard time kind of understanding it, right? He's clear, right? Holiness is important. This is what he charges them to do at the end of verse 12 because we're being called into his kingdom and glory. Now, holiness obviously doesn't mean that we get to do whatever we want because we've been let off the hook, which I think is sometimes the way that we hear the good news of Jesus right, is you're not getting punished, and we think, great, I'm just going to do what I want, which on the one hand, I mean, there's, a, there's an aspect of the, the declaration of the gospel that you are not judged for what you've done. That's so important and essential. But you see, when we think that, well, just because then if the punishment is gone, we can do whatever we want, it betrays the fact that we have wanted simply the gift without the giver. And we will find that the gift eludes us because at the end of the day, the gift itself is the giver. We're being called into his kingdom in glory to see him face to face. So we mostly know it's not lawlessness, but it often feels like the gospel leads us into a kind of legalism, into a kind of moralism that we're being called, we know we're being called to change. And we think, and we often do this, we think, well, I know that I've been forgiven, but I know God requires something of me as well. I've got to somehow do something right to stay in God's good graces which is to say we want to come to the giver with our own gift, which is not how it works. <laughs> it means we don't want a giver. You see, both the kind of temptation towards lawlessness and legalism tend to see God not as the end himself. They tend to see him as somebody who, well, has either just all he wants is a judgment past. And whether we think we just kind of get off the hook or whether we think we need to somehow earn it, they go astray. But the way that Paul sees it, and we're going we're gonna to see more of this as we go in this book, is that God wants us to be with him and to be like him. And that's what he's doing. Is working into our hearts by his Holy Spirit, a change. And that means dying to an old thing, and it means living into a new thing. And those always go together. Whenever Paul talks about holiness, we should not merely hear, stop sinning. And Paul, over and over and over again, is at pains. We could go through all this, but... Over and over and over again, as that pain is to show you, it is not simply about not sinning. It is about growing into the character of Christ. It's about becoming like him in his character. It is not about, yes, there is an aspect of it that is putting to death the old thing. Dying to sin, to the works of the flesh, as Paul often calls it. But it means growing into the fruit of the Spirit. And this is a sure sign that we have lost a real sense of holiness when all we think about is just stopping sinning. That is fake holiness. If it doesn't mean actually growing into the character, growing into the fruit of the Spirit. And it is a sure sign of phony holiness when all we're concerned with is sin. And not righteousness. And that's what righteousness means, right? It's growing into that kind of character. It's not just not sinning. It's growing into the very likeness of Jesus. So, again, Paul's kind of laying out this pattern, and the pattern that he has for the church is to be ministering the gospel and growing in holiness. But the way in which he sees that happening is also twofold. It's not merely that he's kind of look in saying, hmm, okay, are they becoming more holy? Paul's not even there, right? I mean, he gets a report from Timothy, but they, you know, he doesn't know all the details on the ground. Instead, he points to their engagement with the Word and what they're willing to endure. So notice this. This is, the, this is what it looks like to imitate. Paul has said that, you know, there's this, you need to You need to celebrate the gospel. You need to grow in holiness. But the litmus test for whether that's going to happen is if you engage the word. This is verse 13. You received the word from them. You know, you're celebrating that they received the word from them, not as word from men, but the word of God. And this doesn't mean we're simply reading the Bible. It means that we're engaging it, applying it. It means that the Word is actually making a difference in our lives. This is why uh, da- King David in the Psalms often talks about meditating on the Word. Because the, merely the act of reading it is not what Paul is talking about. <laughs> Lots of people read it. People read it for academic purposes. People read it who don't believe it but it's about meditating on it, thinking deeply on it. I dare say prayerfully engaging God's word. And then he says, uh, he says, so, so this, is, this, was, this is what he's most thankful for. They've engaged him with the word and that they've become, this is verse 14, imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus in Judea. How? How? They are suffering the same things from their own countrymen that the people in the earliest church back in Jerusalem, Judea is the region around Jerusalem, suffered from their people. Notice that's the, that's the main idea here. And the rest of the stuff that Paul's talking about the Jews is, is in the context of making that point. And he's thankful that they, are growing, that they are growing and the sign that they are growing is that they are suffering from their own countrymen as the earliest church did from its own countrymen. Uh, this, is, this is tough. This is hard to get our heads around. See, Paul himself, of course, is Jewish. Uh, all of the apostles are Jewish. All of them. Jesus was Jewish, to state the obvious point. Paul's, Paul's point here is not obviously, I hope it's clear at this point, a kind of anti-Jewish rhetoric. Paul's thinking historically here. This is really important to understand. What Paul is thinking through, and this is, by the way, not the only moment where Paul reflects on his own people. There are, of course, plenty of other places. One of the most significant is Romans 9 through 11. And at the beginning of Romans 9, Paul says, if I could be cast out so that my people would come to faith, I would do it. So make no mistake about where Paul's coming from. And in fact, he ends that whole section in Romans by holding out the hope that more of his people will come back. But he is saying, look, historically what happened was Israel, who was, again, the whole of the Bible thinks of Israel as humanity's last best hope. That if Israel rejected Jesus, then no one's without hope by themselves. That if Israel rejected the Messiah, that was the end of their mission. Israel had been called by God to bring redemption in and if they rejected the redemption that came out of Israel, that that is the end of Israel's special status. Now, this is complicated, and I know that I can't get into all of this. <laughs> but the point of, I think that Paul is driving at here is that, look, the earth, his own people rejected Jesus and the prophets and they no longer have any special standing with God. That's distinct from any other place. Now, that doesn't mean the Gentiles are better, right? That's certainly not what Paul's getting at here. He is saying that everyone must come to Jesus to be saved. And again, you could look at Romans, and if, if we were kind of diving into this more, we see that Paul's great desire is that his own people go that they come to faith. In fact, what we saw back in Acts 17 in the first sermon on this was that Paul did what he always does, and he starts by going to the synagogue, looking for his people to receive the Messiah. This is his great longing. But he does recognize that in rejecting Jesus, they have fulfilled what Jesus actually said would happen. That's where this language in verse 16 comes from a filling up the measure of their sins because Jesus, in Matthew 23, in a a very scathing indictment of the religious leaders in particular, says, Fill up the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. He says, "All these things, all the guilt of this has come upon this generation because they're going to reject him." So Paul's thinking about the history here, of how this has played out, and he's echoing the words of Jesus that that is that fills up the measure of their sin, which is an expression kind of throughout the Bible of getting to the logical endpoint of our sinfulness. It was rejecting Messiah. So I don't mean to make light of any of that, any of this. I hope that that's clear at this point. It's, there's certainly much more we can say about the relationship between Christianity and Judaism, how that has played out historically, and much of that looks real bad on the church. Let's be clear. But what Paul is always concerned about is that whether it's Jew or Gentile, our salvation is found in Jesus. He was the fulfillment of everything Israel was hoping for. And in fact, if we are Gentiles, then we are those who have been brought in. So that is a long digression, but it does, but the main point here is that they are experiencing the suffering at the hands of Gentiles that his, he and the Jewish Christians had suffered at the hand of the other Jews. In other words, the distinction is not between Jew and Gentile. Make this connection crystal clear. The distinction he's drawing here is not between Jew and Gentile. He is simply saying the Jews have done it first what is happening to you in the Gentile community. So these two things, being in the Word and enduring suffering for Jesus, are the litmus test for what it means to actually imitate the disciples, to imitate other churches, and of course, most of all, to imitate Jesus himself. Scripture is given to us, I mean, this is the way in which you distinguish what is unique about Paul and from what is actually the thing we're all supposed to imitate, right, it's in God's Word. Paul's also sinful, and I don't think he's encouraging them to continue to imitate his own sinful patterns along the way. No, we need Scripture to help us clarify and hone what it is we're, the pattern that we're supposed to follow. But it is Scripture that we need to listen to to do that. This is a challenge because I think many of us are not in Scripture as much as we think we should be. Uh, I've met a few people who have said the pandemic has actually helped them be in the Word more. Most people that I know feel like it's been more discouraging. Or I should say most people I've talked to. It's an unscientific survey. But going to God's word and listening to it and meditating on it is not about holding the Bible out as some sort of symbol, as some badge of belonging to a group. It is not a magical item. It is not a talisman. It is God's word that we're supposed to reflect on. And when we reflect on it, it does not fail. Uh, a poet named Malcolm Gite, who's a Christian This talks about this. He says, open the text again, for it is true. The book you open always opens you. See, we often approach Scripture as this this thing I'm going to study. This thing I'm going to come to understand. And the reality is that Scripture interprets us. I'm not trying to shortchange understanding the historical background and doing all that sort of thing, but I am saying that we actually go, we try to interpret Scripture so that Scripture will interpret us, because that's the way the Bible's supposed to work, is we're not merely supposed to go to it with our agenda, we are supposed to see that it has its own agenda for us and for our lives. And it's about understanding with clarity what that is. When we go to Scripture, then, and we're thinking about the pattern of those that we know, whether it's a Paul, whether it's Paul, whether it's another apostle, whether it's the early church, whether it's people that you've known in your own life who have influenced your faith, going to Scripture keeps us from hero worship, from buying into somebody's personality, and boy, there's plenty of that in the evangelical world, isn't there? It's kind of scary. Sometimes, how much we buy into one person and their personality. How it seems some really encourage that, actually. And how many of those who, buy, who encourage that end up falling apart. It's scripture that keeps us from hero worship. It helps us to keep our bearings, right? That we can learn from those who have gone before us. We should learn from those who have gone before us but we are not trapped merely to do the same thing. We, we go to God's word for clarity about seeing how they live their lives and how, what we can learn from that, what we should learn from that, but also where that diverge. Remember, Paul says, imitate me as I am imitating Christ. In other words, where there's a difference, you go with the original. <laughs> Don't just keep imitating me if you think there's a difference between my character and Christ's. Go with Christ. And I think that suffering then has, one of the ways in which it's significant for Christians is in this context of following Jesus, of listening to him and him alone. Now there's there's another occasion where we can talk about suffering in general. Suffering is always a hard question and there is the bigger question. I mean, everyone will experience suffering in life sooner or later everyone and modern western society is maybe the least equipped culture ever to actually cope with it but again that's a conversation for another time you can always call me (laughs) if you've got things you want to talk about with that But Paul does put his finger, and actually the whole of the New Testament puts its finger over and over and over again on this particular truth, that there is a unique form of suffering that the church will experience. Paul puts it bluntly in 2 Timothy 3 where he says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I've never seen that crocheted into a throw pillow. Of all the Bible promises that are out there of all the ones ripped out of context that could possibly encourage you no one's ever printed put on a poster carved into wood second Timothy 3 never seen it i'd love to i'd love to go to some i'd love to go to some market sometime where somebody's just got that there see see how well it sells it's not popular but it's inevitable that's what Paul's saying, right? It's inevitable. Because, and this is why, because inevitably, if you follow the king and what he values, you will inevitably, to some degree or another, and it won't be the same degree for every single person, but to some degree or another, you will inevitably find yourself at odds with others. Again, that may be. I think it always will put you at odds with the dominant values of the society around you. Again, that may happen to a greater or a lesser degree in some places than others, but it will eventually. It will eventually put you at odds with the values of your career more often than not. Because what it would take to get ahead... At some point or another, everybody, if you're following Jesus, will face some questions about that. It doesn't mean you won't be successful, but it might mean you have to make some sacrifices and some tough choices, doesn't it? As a parent, the pressure to look a certain way, conform to whatever the dominant paradigm is for parenting... Because that is changing. Uh, Inevitably, to follow Jesus will mean that you don't fit the mold. You might not be, you might seem a lot stricter than some other parents. You also might seem a lot more patient and generous and gentle than some other parents, depending on what the paradigm is. Uh, You will have different priorities. Because isn't parenting, like, fueled by getting your kid in and getting ahead? I mean, I'm as susceptible to that as a parent as anybody. <laughs> and that is the stuff of parenting now. But what if that's not the most important thing? You might look a little weird. It might prove difficult. It will, always, it will put us at odds sooner or later with Friends. There will be friendships that will become harder because of this. It will put us at odds with family at some point. Again, maybe to greater or lesser degrees, maybe not as extreme in some situations as others. But listen, this is the promise that Paul gives us that if we want to live a godly life, we will be persecuted. Now, we need to have perspective. Okay, so we need to have perspective, right? There are other, those of us sitting here in Charleston are certainly not experiencing a degree that people in other parts of the world are experiencing, a persecution. And let's not get crazy about the, what we claim we're experiencing, okay? Like, let's have some perspective about that. Pre- appreciate that whatever it is we think is challenging about living out the gospel is certainly not costing us our lives. Uh, or not our livelihood, usually. And we should also be honest that some Christians are just obnoxious. I mean, really. Some people claim to be persecuted and they're being jerks and they're just reaping what they sowed, right? Like, I, like Let's be clear about that. So we're going to have a little, little perspective here. But what the suffering looking at you, John, the, uh, the suffering we're experiencing as Christians is meant to call out faith, hope, and love. We talked about these at the beginning of the book, but this is the response that God is looking to draw out from us, is deeper faith in him, is a greater hope in his kingdom than the kingdoms of this world. and a love even for those who persecute us. You can love those that treat you well. That's not anything special. I mean, we may not even do that very well. But can you love those who persecute you? Because that is what it means to be conformed to Jesus. You can hear Paul actually spell this out in Romans 12. He says, "'Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves.'" But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You hear Paul thinking this out. And the reason is because, again, the the ultimate pattern we are following is Jesus himself. Think about everything Paul's talked about with his ministry and how he's seeing that work out in their lives. Right? Jesus is the man of faith, hope, and love. He is the one who trusted Himself to the Father to accomplish our salvation. He is the one who put His hope not in what His earthly life would turn out to be, but in what it would accomplish. He is the one who sought the path of self sacrificial love. Jesus' life is the pattern for faith, hope, and love. Jesus' life is the pattern of holiness. We've already kind of talked about that at length, right? Jesus is the one that, in his holiness, is not merely that he's sinless, but that he fully expresses God's character, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Jesus is the one who lives that out, shows us what that really looks like on the ground. Jesus is a man of Scripture. I mean, think about how much he's, he's reflecting on Scripture. He can't help but bring it up when he's on the cross. Jesus is looking for his guidance from God's word. Again, he is God himself, but he still goes back to the word to clarify and hone what he is doing. He goes back for wisdom from God's word itself. And he is, of course, the man of suffering. It's his suffering that would bring about redemption. I mean, our suffering in that regard, of course, is not redemptive. Like, I don't die for you the suffering of the church in teaching us faith, hope, and love is supposed to bring others back to Jesus, that they might see how good the good news of Jesus really is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have this pattern, not only from Paul, not only from the early church. But, of course, the pattern itself is an imitation of Jesus. Pray that you would teach us what it looks like to live out of faith, hope, and love through suffering. By being in your word. Growing deeper in holiness and love for the good news. Pray that we would be a church. that holds out the beauty of Jesus, that others would come, and those who are already here would be strengthened and brought nearer to you. Do this by your spirit. We ask you because you've promised to do it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.